Hello, listeners. Hello, listeners. Hello, listeners. Happy 2017. Happy 2017. The uh, the winner of the best year since 2015 award. (laughs) 2016 wasn't so bad, Mr. Anik, you're being a cynic. Not at all, not for me. Um, (laughs) Which is disconcertingly (laughs) vague. Um, Um, Jamie, welcome. Welcome 2017. Uh, Welcome to room 317. Um, (laughs) And uh, I wanted to ask you... um, about the the canon of Christmas movies. Always a good question. Tell me more. Um, canon of Christmas movies. There are some movies you have to watch at Christmas time. Uh, we mentioned last time, of course, Charles Dickens' uh, Scrooge, immortalised by uh, the Muppets, Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah. Um, I go for the Snowman, Raymond Briggs, Ooh. and then they and then they, they they did a sort of they did another one a couple of years ago. What was it called? Snow the, Dog. Snow Dog. Was it Snow Dog? I think there was a Snow was Dog. That a joke? I think there was, was a Snow, snow dog, dog in it. Was it Snow Woman? But they did one a couple of years ago that was that was awful. Um, but yeah, Raymond Briggs, Snowman. I know what you're going to say. What am I going to say? Die Hard. Craig Brown's favourite Christmas movie is <laughs> Die Hard, but I I stumbled across a classic of the Christmas canon uh, that I haven't watched for a good twenty five years. Um, Gremlins. Ooh. Gremlins, gremlins. Uh, you know famous for uh, I, p- people putting gremlins into food processors and microwaves yeah which actually may have given people the idea to put their own pets into microwaves which I believe happened for a while which is why now there's big stickers on the door saying do not put living things into microwaves yeah no in fact but it was actually a metaphor in the film the idea of if you see uh, if you hear if something's wrong with your microwave there might just be a gremlin in the machine Oh, powerful stuff. <laughs> it was powerful stuff. Anyway, but, but, but what makes that a Christmas movie? Well, d- well is it Christmas? Um, yeah, and, apart from that. and it's snowing, and it's Christmas Eve. But more importantly, I just felt it, it had all of those features of the Gothic that we talked about in episode three. <laughs> Did it really, though? I think it had almost all of them. Like Christmas, <laughs> Gremlins. Gremlins are not Gothic. Well, they look a bit like gargoyles, <laughs> which also are not really. Good. Okay, well, you can have that as Gothic. If I suppose uh, bounded space. Bounded space. Haunted by secrets of the past. And re- reproducing water. So All the gothic conventions you do are the, there. You do the math. Okay, um, so Jamie, yeah. uh, that's the end of that. Now listen, I, I, I was doing some research uh, recently because um, I think just, just last week we had, uh, we're recording on January the 24th, uh, 2017. Is that today? January 24th? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, and, time. and last week was the inauguration of uh, President Donald <laughs> Trump. And I can't help feeling that we're partially responsible for Trump's election. And I don't mean we as in uh, the sort of... Is in the left or is the, in well, you and I? The progressive uh, <laughs> neoliberals who've casually ignored the plight of normal working folk um, and allowed for the... Uh, for the ramblings of a lunatic demagogue. No, I don't think that. I think I think actually you and I. Why? You and I. Because, and, and here's the thing. Uh, we're going to be talking a little about soothsayers today. And, and seers. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and things. And I think if we go back to episode one. Mm-hmm. The episode one was indeed entitled uh, End of the World as We Know It. Yeah. Um, and little did we know. That was recorded I think on October the 6th. Or published on October the 6th. And on November the 8th, or, or November the 9th um, of 2016, uh, the day after the um, mm. now 
legendary yeah. uh, presidential election. Uh, the the headline on the front of Der Spiegel, yeah. um, the German uh, newspaper, was the end of the world as we know it. Ah. So somebody in Germany was tuning into episode yeah. one. I think people were Googling the end of the world as we know it, hoping to get that Spiegel article. And, and, and they came up with those. Well, they listened to it hoping to get some insight into Trump and instead they got some inane chatter <laughs> about dystopia. Well, that is true, but I, th- I do think... Well, actually, the two go hand in hand, to be fair. <laughs> Chronologically, what you're saying isn't strictly true, though, because actually they would have... All of the, that, that, those crazy listeners happened first. True. So maybe we inspired... The Trump election. Yeah, my only, right. my only other theory is this. Um, tr- I, th- I think Trump himself might have been listening because in that first episode, I did. I think I remember saying something along the lines of, "Jamie, you are the guy who knows stuff about stuff." Yeah. And that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. Yeah. No, thanks. I, I, I want to get it just right. And what what Trump actually said very soon after his election was talking about Vladimir Putin. He said. Vladimir Putin's a smart guy. He knows things about things. <laughs> so, me and Putin are made of the same right. stuff. I mean, I mean, you can't argue with yeah. truth and facts. With stuff and things. Um, especially not in a world where post-truth was post-truth. the wor- word of the year. <laughs> we um, both know stuff about stuff. <laughs> the stuff I know stuff about is pretty useless. Uh, so, right. Jamie... Well, um, there you go. Um, we are now recording 24th of January. This is episode four... Um, we'll deal with the uh, topic of episode for a minute, but it's uh, it's t- that time again. Your telegrams now. I haven't prepared my telegrams. I've got a telegram here, Jamie. No, I have. I've got a telegram here from um, from a, a savage chap. Uh, the, the joke is he's called Oscar Wilde. <laughs> and it's not a joke. Oscar Wilde says, Jamie and Neil, uh, the suspense is terrible. I hope it will last, which I think is always witty, a, a pithy and profound. It is uh, pithy and profound. Although I did come across a a book of uh, Oscar Wilde witticisms recently, and um, you do realise that he just sort of he likes the paradox, mm. and it's just a series of we all? paradoxes after three all? or four pages become really irritating. Yeah, um, but, I, it, but this sounds like, smart like, in isolation. I like a paradox. Yeah, it's becoming harder and harder to live simply. Oh, there we go. <laughs> anyway, uh, my my telegram was from uh, Tommy Stoppard. Oh, I, I went I went to school with a boy called Tommy Stoppard. Tommy Powell. <laughs> no, Tommy Stoppard. I went to school with a boy called Tommy Stoppard. <laughs> but that's not the Tommy Stoppard I'm, I'm thinking of. No, I, I'm thinking I went of... to school with Jim Carrey. No, no, but not the famous Hollywood actor. <laughs> Just a guy called Jim Carrey. Really, true story. You also went to school with Darren Brown's dad. Didn't you? Yeah, I did, and in fact, I was watching a Darren Brown show the other day, and he said when his dad got, his dad got ill, his dad was of course he was my, a sw- swimming. He was teacher, my swim teacher, he? yeah, right. and he did used to stand there at the side of the pool wearing speedos <laughs> and chomping a cigar. Bob Brown, true story. <laughs> Bob Brown. Bob Brown. He used to sit there chomping the cigar, and every now and again, a fight would break out in the change. He never went near the change rooms, which was quite good. Yeah. But he was pretty much the only good teacher who didn't. <laughs> That's a true story. But he never went near the change rooms. But occasionally a fight would break out. And of course, yeah. boys were just wearing their swim trunks and then getting changed. And then boys. a fight broke out. And suddenly two little naked boys would be running, sort of punching each other into the swimming pool. That's a true story. Darren Brown's dad. <laughs> Darren Brown's dad. Was Darren Brown's dad. explains a lot about Darren Brown. Yeah, Darren Brown went to school with me. He, he's, he's retreated into the world of psychology. <laughs> he's a bit older than me, Darren Brown. I, 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 Is he really? It, you're, you're much older than him. 
Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. It's, it, I, I'm not, I don't have uh, all, the, all the riches of, of Hollywood to uh, yeah. make myself um, look younger. You're making me think of who I went to school with, with that was possibly famous. Um, do you know the actor Tom Hollander? No, okay. Do you know um, a band called Storn Away? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> um, my, my, uh, my telegram is from... Um, yeah, Tommy Stoppard. Um, is it Nina Jamie? Um, I can't believe you made it to number four. Anyway, we only know what we're told, and that's little enough. And for all we know, it isn't even true. Oh, <laughs> brilliant like stuff by Tom Stoppard. I like that. Tom Stoppard had, a, had a, an interesting relationship with you know, life's meaning <laughs> and our place in the earth. It, 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 see, I think Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is one of the most incredible players of the 20th century, which we all talk about later yeah. today, I suppose, which is where that quote's taken from. Sorry, no, it was a telegram. It was written to us personally. <laughs> um, he, can I, um, he also says something about, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, about a, philosoph- a Chinese philosopher who dreamed he was a butterfly and from that moment on, he didn't know if he was a philosopher dreaming he was a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he was a philosopher. But then Stoppard says, envy him in his twofold security. Mm. He knows he's one of those two things, butterfly or philosopher. The rest of us, we've got no idea what the hell we are. I wish I, I wish I had Tom Stoppard here with me in the flesh to chat about, or at least a copy of Rosencrantz and Gunston are dead. Um, to, <laughs> well, my to, friend from school, or Tom Stoppard, to, really. To, to come in your friend, Tommy Stoppard. <laughs> and I wish, I wish Bob Brown was here. Um, just to, so just to chat away with me about his cigar and <laughs> naked boys. I do have um, my friend... Have it, was, a, it was like a swimming pool <laughs> version of Lord of the Flies. It was. I don't want to know. Um, I do have a friend called Patrick Coogan. And guess what his dad's called? Um, Coogan Steven. Steve Coogan oh, I got lovely. Steve Coogan oh splendid legend legend oh. your topic of the week now um, film oh. or theatre oh. who wins you decide oh you decide oh. that's a better title yeah but I'm not sure your topic of the week now film or theatre who wins hang on a sec wait your, I, I said yeah, film or theatre your topic of the week now what am I doing film or theatre Wait, what, what do you want me to do? I don't know. Okay, all right. But anyway, um, they get that idea at the top of the week. But um, well, who wins, you decide. We'll just keep up with sort of the, the trend of reality TV shows. We'll imagine. Okay. In fact, people can vote. They can vote. Yeah. Yeah. Send, by telegram. Uh, yeah, vote by telegram. Who wins, film or theatre? Just write film or theatre. But please, please, please don't vote now. First of all, lines are not open yet. Lines second open at midnight. Of, second of no. all, please call responsibly and make sure you have the permission of the person <laughs> who, pays the bill. <laughs> who pays the bill. That, doesn't, that was only in the days of landlines. It yeah, doesn't exist anymore. That's right. And th- yeah, that's right. I pay the bill. It's please swipe the direction. And, and thirdly, um, please listen to our points first. Because otherwise, I mean... Yeah. What, what's otherwise, you're just going to hit film now and then it's You're just going to play no a, fun. a pointless game. Yeah. Um, this is, a, this is, a, a, this is a, a real reader response pod. Because we heard the calling of Matthew Waghorn. Um, we did. Yeah. Technically, my brother-in-law. Um, Although he would never admit it. it not, not publicly. Um, but he, uh, he did say, look, I'm going to ask a question. Why don't we just watch the films? And I'm not asking that question. Yeah. Just no, I thought it was a great question. Yeah, he, great he, question. he says, and in fact, he, he, he ended up with a more interesting question, which was, how does theatre still exist? But I'm going to give, we're going to, we're going to explore initially... The value, really, the history yeah. of theatre to some doing? extent. Yeah. Um, 
And then we'll look at film. And then we'll, limitations, we'll draw, developments. We'll draw some. We'll, we'll, we'll look at the limitations We're, of our argument ultimately, yeah. and then we'll draw some conclusions. There's no limitations to my argument. In, uh, we're, 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 in, in the immortal words of two unlimited. <laughs> no, no, no limits. Um, yeah, um, we're basically going to give you stuff to talk about at parties. And it's funny actually because we're going to start by talking and a little link to episode three. Um, I think we, that, we that was the Gothic. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was okay. the Gothic, which had a, had a had a weird sort of Bee Gees umbrella. <laughs> and uh, if you can, by the way, Bee Gees umbrellas are available at all. <laughs> Major, major you go to the tedious argument <laughs> merchandise. <laughs> the merch. We actually need some tedious argument yeah. merch. If I know. The first bit of merch is going to be a Bee Gees umbrella. Um, but we're going to get the Bee Gees. We had a Bee Gees umbrella to the last episode. And I think we found out that, was it me or you? Maybe me. Uh, you were born in the year of the Bee I was born in the year of the Bee Gees. And I think every number one for the first six months of the year was by a Bee Gees. Yeah, or by the Bee Gees. Basically, your star sign is Bee Gees. <laughs> it is peachy. In fact, my parents should have called me Barry Gary Allen. I went to school with someone called Gary Allen, and he's actually his two middle initials were GG, and we just assumed his parents had a stutter. <laughs> Gary Allen, which is actually not in anyway, any, it's not can... in any way making fun of people with a with a speech impediment. And what about the Bee Gees? Right, Bee Gees. Because there's only one Bee Gee remaining, so we should. So we need to talk about the, and that's a tragedy. <laughs> Hence the uh, connection. So we're going to start. Let's talk initially about tragedy because this is. It's <laughs> <laughs> not about the Bee Gees today. No, let's talk about how deep is your love. Let's talk, let's talk about tragedy because if we go back to approximately 700 BC, we basically get the birth of the birth of BC <laughs> or BG. Sorry, before God. Good before God. Gib. Before Gib. <laughs> we get the birth of theatre, yeah. essentially. Right, and the birth of theatre, um, more or less simultaneously was dealing with tragedy and comedy, but we're going to deal with tragedy. Okay, and, and the, Greek, the Greek drama, Greek tragedy for tragedy fans, um, we had a, a hero with a tragic flaw, which is the very loose translation yeah. of Hamartia. And this, this, this characteristic, in, in perhaps in any other circumstance, might be seen as a strength. But uh, in this case, it was seen as a flaw. Um, because of other circumstances, it, it brings about the downfall. Mm. Um, the obvious one is, is poor Oedipus. Yeah. Oedipus the king. Uh, Oedipus um, was very much... Romeo, in fact, from Shakespeare's play, was very much his Oedipus Rex. He was the... Uh, or Oedipus Tyrannus in Greek. Mm. Uh, he was the <clears throat> guy who... Basically, was a bit too proud and a bit too arrogant and a bit too mm. sure he was in control of his own fate and fortune. And, and, and we should probably clarify here for, for for listeners who are aware of Shakespeare's works, as they will be having done the tenth mm. grade English course and um, IB English. Um, of course, Shakespeare Shakespeare's tragedies are very tightly modelled on the the Greek tragedies. Yeah, aren't they? But, but I mean, yeah, they are, and, and perhaps. The tightest being Romeo and Juliet, mm. I think. Um, obviously, Hamlet's more of a revenge tragedy. Yeah. Macbeth's a very different kind of play, but has lots of features of the Greek yeah. tragedy. But, 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 but it's fascinating that, that for the Renaissance audience, and for us today, we don't quite know what to do with Macbeth, and that simply because he doesn't fit the Greek tragic mould, does he? And that he, If you talk about the tragic weakness, the homatia, as you said, then what would Macbeth's be? My guess is it would be ambition. That's what a lot, but, yeah, a lot but, but, say, yeah. But is he good in the way that Greek tragic characters are? But, but, but actually, I mean, we're going to come to this soon, I'm well, sure. Well, he is. I mean, he's fundamentally, initially, he's put forth as being brave Macbeth. Well, he deserves that name. Yeah. 
Um, but he's never really good. In fact, he's very bloodthirsty. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's good off stage. Apparently, he was good before the play started. And play starts. Yeah, yeah. But um, but actually, what's fascinating about that, of course, is that how much time has passed between the Greek tragedies and Shakespeare. We're looking at like 1800, 19, 2000 years. We're looking at 2000 years, right? Best part. Possibly yeah, more. Yeah, more than 2000 it, years. Yeah. In which, so we're basically saying that theatre has not changed in those no. 2000 years, that we judge Shakespearean theatre by not, Greek yeah. tragedy. Yeah, not, not, it's almost not changed at all. I mean, you've got, you've got a bear. Let's, mm. So to go back to the Greeks, um, in very similar ways, Shakespeare, of course, it was a slightly different thing. His, his audience were down below the stage to some extent in the mm. yard um often slightly miscalled the pit um <laughs> and uh, the mosh pit and and then what we've got is but but in greeks of course we've got this mounted amphitheater yeah. but on stage you've got no set yeah. uh in the greeks you had a chorus who would sing the um what was going to happen before it happened mm. which not only was a way of storytelling mm. but also was in fact this 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 fantastic notion of um sort of metaphorically emphasising the idea that fate is predetermined. Which is, of course, what Shakespeare borrows from. Mm. The chorus that started Romeo and Juliet, two households both alike in dignity and fair brand yeah. and scene. Two star-crossed lovers take their lives. We know they're going to kill themselves from that opening chorus. Yeah, and in fact... And it, yet we watch on. As a, as a, yeah, absolutely. And I even <laughs> say, if, if you want to know more, stay, stay and watch the next two hours. Or, or well, there's a base of conscious or, or violence, isn't there? Yeah. This will form the traffic of our stage. Two hours traffic of our stage. Yeah. Yeah, two hours. I mean, that whole use of time, yeah. which the, is an the, issue. They were off by 14 minutes, but I think we can... We can well, only time. because in, in the version in, in the film Shakespeare in Love, the, 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 the chorus delivering the program yeah, had a stutter. stutter. Yeah, I think um, on the stutter. Just just a reminder of Gary Allen from uh, Gary um, from the eighties. Anyway, so there's different things. So the Greeks had uh, they wore masks. Um, crucially, they died off stage. See, I, I thought that was a Roman tradition. I thought the off stage death was Roman tragedy, like Horace and Seneca, and the on stage was Greek. Really? But I might. I might be wrong. I heard that one of them, Romans or Greeks, liked to actually kill. Servants and they had like executions on stage that would form part, but that might be. It sound, I mean, it sounds like could be over myth. But the Greeks, if you think about the Greeks, the, the sort of the, the birth of intellectual curiosity yeah. and philosophy. And the Romans, Greek, yeah. the birth of <clears throat> mutilating, brutal, brutal mutilating, and you know, sort of gladiatorial eating conquest. olives. Of those two, I, I'm guessing yeah. who's going to be happy yeah, with murder true. on stage. Yeah, true, I think the Romans did it. But anyway. Um, so the Greek Greek tragedy had this. They had they had this chorus. They had a hamartia, this tragic flaw that brought someone down. So Oedipus was very proud. He wanted to know the truth. Uh, he thought he was in control of his own fate. So he ran up when he heard his prophecy that he was going to, um, you know, uh, kill his father and, mm. and marry. And of course, in brackets, um, you know, drink fine wine, smoke nice Hamlet cigars, mm. and um, put listen to Marvin Gaye music with his mother. Um, then we uh, we knew, of course. So did the grapevine. We yeah, uh, or the other one. The other one. Okay. <laughs> and and at that point in time, he ran away from uh, the town he was living because he didn't want yeah. to do that. And in fact, he didn't realise he they weren't his real parents. And he yeah. did actually uh, have children with his mother and kill his father. And and um, and his mother ended up killing herself. Eucasta, his queen, killed herself off stage. And Oedipus stabbed out his eyes. The better Greek, the yeah, <laughs> sounds, like a, sounds like a typical Saturday night. Yeah, well, look, I mean that <laughs> the U Club. No, that is very much. <laughs> anyway, but we, but we dealt with it. Anyway. And in fact, the, the even better tragedy is his his daughter Antigone or Antigone in French. Uh, but we're not going to we're not going to dwell there. For was that now. was that for our French cousins? That was for our French cousins. Uh, but 
we're not going to stay there. What we are no, in, what we are interested, what we are interested in is there's absolutely no attempt at realism, mm. right? And in fact, drama <clears throat> has a a very much it, 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 the theatre has microcosmic messages. Mm. Uh, so so it's, it's just a little microcosm to pass on social messages, essentially. Right. And, so yeah. it's, a, it's a public forum. Right. So and this is why, of course, um, this is I'm sure you can understand why we as English teachers get frustrated when. When students were reading Macbeth or Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet, or whatever, and you point out things that suggest that it's not believable, when you try pointing out to us that, oh, Hamlet's delivering a soliloquy, but Ophelia's on the stage, he would have known she was there. It's not believable. Or point out things like, well, why would he have drunk the poison? Surely it would have tasted a poison and he shouldn't have drunk it. If those are your issues with Shakespeare, you're kind of missing the point. Yeah. Yeah, there's right. no, yeah, there's, and there's no issue. There, there's no attempt at realism, uh, and and in fact, as we sort of said earlier, this idea of realism does not even surface. It, it rear its ugly chops until the pretty much. I mean, yeah. no movement happens overnight by or by one person, but really, it tends to be accredited to. Henrik Ibsen, the Norwegian playwright, in sort of 1870s. It's the 1870s. 1870s. Is that could, two and a half thousand years later? Could, could we say it's alongside Emil Zola? Realism and naturalism and so on. It's the yeah. same, same type period, isn't it? Same time I period, I only because yeah. my students are going to do Theresa Rican pretty soon, so this might get them listening. Yeah, with the bull neck. Probably won't. The... Theresa Rican about a man with a bull neck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Gets, and a woman with nerves. Gets, yeah, she, she gets she very gets nervous. Really nervous. Very cat-like. She gets really nervous, and you she put does. them together in, in the passage. Passage du Pont Neuf. The big bull neck and the cat yeah. nerves, and, and just look at what happens. And, the, and they end up killing a cat. Yeah, they, they they throw the cat yeah. out the window and it hits and it breaks the, its back and it but it crawls off yeah and it, oh. and, it, and it mews all night and to yeah. be honest I'm I'm no lover of cruelty um, careful what and, you say now no and I'll make that clear but I'm also no lover of cats so there was a little moment in that novel where I had a little stri- a wry smile to because I've seen it's, cats it's, I, I've seen cats looking at me before with this wry with smile that, that knowing that no no but the fact yeah. that this cat is called Francois mm. it, it's a bit too human which is French for French Francois <laughs> <laughs> yeah true um, Francois the cat the all seeing Francois anyway um, that's, a li- that's a little nod to Francois in, in, in my OB2 class and Francois will know that uh, for that well, I, I hope he knows that he's that, called Francois for 18, 18 months when I've said French for French um, I hope he knows that I know that it isn't and that's what makes it funny um, or at least makes I it funny to me he's rolling around laughing oh, right I now. mean I actually heard his rib go once yeah um, oh, but anyway, hilarity so look, it's the 1870s and, and Ibsen, <coughs> Ibsen does... does and Zola. Let's put Zola in there for the sake of our uh, kids. What, okay, Dra- well, but we're talking about dramatic yeah. years. Um, and, and he does this... Uh, he, he produces A Doll's House, um, which is a play that, that is literally playing with the idea of the fourth wall opening up and you're looking okay. into somebody's house. Can you explain the fourth wall idea for our listeners? Well, it's, it's the idea that there... There is a an a invisible wall between audience and and mm. and actors and, and characters. Mm. So even though they might be looking out the audience, they they can't see them and vice versa. So we can all we can all see each other, but there's 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 mm. something there which stops any sort of interaction between mm. the two. But of course, occasionally it's broken. Sh- should we bring in our first sort of theatre versus film? Well, face yeah. off at this point and talk if, about yeah, that, well, that fourth wall, if you like, yeah, because it because it. 
my guess is Greek tragedy, that fourth wall is broken, that actually the audience are engaged. And the audience are engaged directly by the chorus. If a group of people in masks come onto the stage yeah, yeah. and tell us what's about to happen, that's for the audience's benefit. Yeah. And they speak directly to the audience, right? Yeah, and of course. Then, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And it's exactly the same with Shakespeare. Shakespeare, just look at the asides, that Shakespeare's characters speak to the audience. And if we have watched Shakespeare in Love, the audience are right up on the stage, they're leaning on the stage, they're booing, think, they're heckling. Do you think so the asides on. are to the audience? Um, some of them, I guess. Not all of them, though. You couldn't make eye contact with all. But some, <laughs> unless you had some, <laughs> one of those funny eyes. Mad-Eye Moody. From the Goonies? Harry Potter. From the Goonies? What? Is he? Oh. You, you, is that you, you seem to... <laughs> <laughs> you, the common thread in these podcasts is that you're not a Harry Potter fan. No. I, have, I, you, have you even And you are. That's, I'm the, a, that's I'm the other a, thread. I'm a big Potter fan. You bring up Potter as much as I bring up Star Wars. <laughs> don't, don't, don't make, make me make another make Potter another, reference. Yeah, I think you should be... Don't make me make I'm a big fan of, of Potter, though. Yeah, okay, but... Anyway, right. we're going to move on. Um, but um, but, but here's, here's the thing, right? Yes, yes, that's a good point. And I would like to come back at that very shortly with um, when I'm going to talk about uh, Arthur Miller. But before we do, I think, I think it's quite important to, to deal with this notion of um, not just Greek tragedy and fate and fortune and a tragic hero has a tragic flaw, ultimately brings about downfall and, and almost inevitably dies. It's the idea that plays even though they had a social message, we're all about noble folk, hmm. right? And Shakespeare's okay. as well, right? Yeah, they yeah, were yeah. high status. Yeah. I mean, in, in the Greeks, they were gods and kings. Yeah. And, and, it, and in Shakespeare, they were kings and... Prin- they're princes, princes and they're... And, or at least they're the two wealthiest families of yeah, Verona. noble people. Looking at the Capulets and the Montagues, yeah. So what Ibsen did, which seems, you know, is extremely radical, even though it doesn't seem that radical, is he, he went into the, the household of a sort of upper-middle-class mm. Norwegian family, you know, with their doctors and, you know, high-status people. Everyone's favourite kind of family. He was looking at how, how uh, Torvald speaks to his wife, Nora, and he calls them my little squirrel or my little... Flitter gibbet and things like that, which I'm not even sure what that means. And and she and she gets very upset. Eventually, she leaves the house. But um, and as an audience, we feel a little bit uncomfortable just watching this Mm. middle class family collapse in front of their eyes, watching Mm. through their house, the one place they're meant to have privacy. So so Ibsen did that, and everyone, wow, it's absolutely radical. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you about what I think is the most beautiful blend of the two from the 1950s. If find what Greek and yeah, it's, it's and, the per- it, so 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 if Romeo and Juliet's Shakespeare's perfect Greek tragedy, yeah. um, what about if we take a Greek tragedy and start looking at the features of realism that have, have suddenly changed? Suddenly, I mean, there's there's reasons, and it's reasons that won't interest mm. our listeners, but they are reasons yeah. such as we have theatres with that that, that have. We can afford to have sets, and yeah. we can afford to have you know we haven't got travelling, wandering what, minstrels and players. Should, and... should we just take a couple of minutes to think about the, <clears throat> the evolution of the form? Yeah. So, of course, Shakespeare. These are the very, very first professional theatres, right? And the prof- first professional actors. Day, yeah. That actually it wasn't just a sort of group of wanderers that yeah. would pitch up on a village green and sort of do a little performance, and it becomes a profession. But but that said, does this mean that it wasn't a profession in Greek times? I guess it has to be. No, that, right? I think I think I think you you're almost seeing actors as the same as as public 
speakers and performers. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I'm not. Well, it, well, it, it, it's rhetoric as much as the politicians yeah, would it, use it. It was, and, and, and you know, everybody everybody speaks in verse. You know, mm. in in from politicians to to mm. actors. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think, I think the tragedians and and you know, you you Euripides, you Aeschylus, your Sophocles. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the great theorist Aristotle. Yeah. Uh, they they were they were public intellectuals. Yeah. So so the, um, so so as you said, it's just public rhetoric. Yeah. Um, by the time Shakespeare's doing, yeah, they're, they're sort of professionals, yeah, but they are the they are the the lowest of the low yeah, in society. In, but I, I wonder if today, I'm not talking about Hollywood, of course, but there are certain filmmakers that we revere as being sort of intellectuals and social commentators. I think sort of Woody Allen or sort of Ingmar Bergman or something we've yeah. we put up there. I, I wonder if it's worth sort of thinking of our playwrights of the nine, late 1900s, early 20th century as being those kind of intellectuals. I mean, this is, this is pre-cinema that we're talking about Ibsen and you're about to talk about yeah. uh, Miller, aren't you? Yeah. pre-cinema that these guys are the social commentators mm. that these guys are revered and of course Shakespeare obviously way 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 pre-cinema he is the social commentator of the time yeah that's right I think so and I think so and, it, and, it, and of course they're also very they're very concerned with knowledge they're very concerned with history and heritage okay so mm. so Miller of course um, a great a great speaker mm. out against popular conventions and popular popular ideas so for example death of a salesman is miller's anti-american dream play mm. um if you read a view from the bridge it's such a fresh text mm. for dealing with those people at the coalface of globalization and immigration mm. and the melting immigrant mm. you know the, the clash of cultural values and basically saying when working people globalization might be great for people like you and me but when working people have their jobs threatened by globalization, mm. when when they have their cultural values, they have clash of cultural values, in, perhaps even in their, their own yeah. country, which is a pretty loose term in itself. But yeah. then, um, you know, talking earlier about you know the, the, how do we when when things happen in politics that 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 apparently are such a surprise to everyone. I mean, they shouldn't mm. be a surprise. To no, you. right. You know, history plus some knowledge of how the other half lives shouldn't shouldn't be a surprise. Mm. Miller's writing, anyway, what Miller did with The View from the Bridge is he he writes about the Italian-American community and the bridge is Brooklyn Bridge. Mm. But he's actually talking very much about the idea of um, American uh, Italian immigration into America and, 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 you know, seeking the American dream. Well, how, how come they all got stuck in Brooklyn? And mm. we have this great, um, this great self-conscious uh, chorus from Alfieri. You, said, you know, I wouldn't have known it, but something amusing has just happened. You see how, <laughs> you see how uneasily they're not to me? It's because I'm a lawyer in this neighborhood. To meet a lawyer or a priest in the street is unlucky. And he goes, he introduces, and he, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a chorus, and then he becomes a character in the play. Mm. And he introduces, uh, uh, this one's name was Eddie Carbone, a long shaman working the docks from Brooklyn Bridge to the breakwater where the open sea begins. Oh, and he said, it's amazing. That was, that was very good of Mr. McGowan to play the lead <laughs> role as well. I think that's brilliant. brilliant and McGowan comes in and, he, and, he, and he, unfortunately, Eddie, uh, Eddie's a long, a long shaman, a working class yeah. worker, a low, low status worker. Yet he's the tragic hero. Yeah. So you talk about how, how it's gone from Kings and kings mm. and noble folk to mm. upper middle class Norwegian doctors or whatever. 
So suddenly by the 1950s, we've got an Italian immigrant or mm. second generation immigrant, a worker who's our tragic hero. And we have this really up close and personal tragic story which ends in Eddie dying in the street and us all watching him die, which of course is a subversion of the Which, which of course for, for Arthur Miller, and sort of taking that Greek tragic model, just seeing a different context, I don't know if it was before or after when he wrote The Crucible. Which, which is, of course, exactly the same tragic story yeah. of John Proctor, yeah. only set in 1692. Doesn't, yeah. it, 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 it doesn't matter when it's set. It can be Greek, or it can be 1692, so it can be sort of frontier, or it can be right here in New York in the 1950s. And in that, of course, he's commenting on sort of um, Red Scares and McCarthyism. Right. If, if, we, if we want well, to... Yeah, so we can, bring, is, we, we can bring it back to, we can bring it back to the modern day. So it another it another be, connection to 2016. Yeah, so it, right? beca- it becomes an, an, uh, an analogy, of course, but... But that same idea that you've got someone speaking out against something that they see as being wrong and they know they're going to be punished for it and they have to decide, do I stick to what I think is, is right yeah. or do I just kind of accept it? And, and it's that incredible moment. I, I think The Crucible is one of the most moving plays. But, but, uh, for, the, but for the benefit of this podcast, it's a very strange play. It, 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 because it's, it's, it, it's very self-conscious of the fact mm. that it's being written also to be printed. Well, yeah, the huge stage directions the, the, that become more the, as a, the, a booklet. These weird narratives, yeah, yeah, yeah. which are not part of a play. Yeah. Now, of course, stage directions had increased in the 1920s, particularly in American mm. um, drama. So you had like Long Journey Into Night by Eugene O'Neill had, mm. had sort of like three pages of stage directions, which of course didn't mm. exist at all in Shakespeare and, and Greeks because no. there was no Absolutely nothing stage direction. No, and, and, and Ibsen, again, coming back to Ibsen, pioneered that. And I've just done this with Streetcar Named Desire with my Lang and Lick classes, that, of course, the set itself is so symbolic, and that description at the start of the set, the peculiarly tender blue sky. Ooh. You can see warehouses on the set, you can see train tracks on the set, and there's a river, but the river's not blue, it's muddy brown. And there's the, the bar, the blue piano, playing all the way through the, through the play. You can yeah. hear the music of the blue piano. Actually, it refers to it as the infatuated music of brown fingers. That straight away, there's this race issue in, introduced. And actually, that becomes utterly symbolic of the, the struggle that's played out. It's in the, New in Orleans. The con- it's in New Orleans. Yeah. The struggle that's played out in that tiny, tiny house, which also symbolically has a house above it, that people yeah. are just cramped and confined, they're little industrial cogs. The struggle that plays out there has a wider significance. It, it affects yeah. that. That it affects that entire city. But let's just go back to Shakespearean theatre and Greek theatre, where the stage was not important. The set was not important. There was, as far as I, as far as I'm aware, there was no set design. No, no set. At all. In Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, Greek no. theatre, no. it was all left to the imagination. No, it really and, is Ibsen in the, in the 1770s. Right. Yeah, so certainly late, late 1800s and through the 20th century, set becomes important. And again, in the, the Crucible, that opening scene where... Uh, sorry, it's the second scene where we enter Proctor's household and we're told about the shadows and the low ceiling and the stove and the fire and no windows. And this utter claustrophobia of this, this couple that we're, that we're going to basically su- suffer with for the rest of the play. But theatre didn't always need that. Theatre had been for sort of for almost two thousand years an act of imagination, and suddenly the set becomes a becomes a a tool, it becomes a symbol. What we're both saying there is there's something about the realism that is appealing, right? It's the realism that draws us, and it was in fact that realism that so upset Bertolt Brecht, mm, writing from okay. from Berlin at the time, yeah. or from Germany, and he was saying 
he was saying, actually, we're all getting drawn into allowing, you know, and he, and he, he was talking post Ibsen. He can only mm. have been talking post Ibsen. He was saying, we're getting ourselves drawn into being what he called hypnotized mm. by the realism, allowing ourselves to feel empathy for the characters and therefore worry, caring so much about individual characters' plights that mm. we're, we're missing the bigger picture. Which actually comes back perfectly to bigger what, picture we, piece, what, what right. we tell students all the time. If you talk about the characters as being real humans, you cannot write a good essay. They yeah. are not real people. No. They are creations. And it, 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 it doesn't mean you can't you can't appreciate the the no, aesthetic of the art. No, of, of course. In of fact, course. that's that's one of the classic false dichotomies we throw around. As soon as we start telling kids that you you know you can't write about them, the false dichotomy is well that means we're we're stopping kids enjoying. No, we're not. Mm. It's it's appreciating the art as a construction. Yeah. Oh. It, yeah, absolutely. And I think when students are writing about literature, they write they should be writing about it as a construction. Absolutely. And then recognize that these characters have been created for a very for for a reason and that reason may may be aesthetics, it may be beauty, but also it communicates something else. But that's a danger of realism. And it's a danger I'm doing streetcar at the moment with my Langanet classes and we get sucked into that battle of Stanley and Blanche. We've got to remind ourselves they're not real people. They're constructed right. because Williams wants us to consider something. Yeah. He wants us to consider this clash of cultures and this sort of modernity versus the past. And Brecht, fascinating being, and Brecht being a fascinating Marxist, in fact, yeah. was dealing with a, a similar theory of alienation. Mm. Marx was oh, he's the, the master of the... Yeah, Marx was the, the alienation of the white-collar yeah. worker, uh, yeah. the blue-collar worker. And Brecht is saying it's very important that we have alienation of, of character and audience. Yeah. Well, we Which can... is why, at the start of every scene, he would tell us what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. D- doesn't want us to get sucked into the action of For, it. foreshadowing wants... supertitles. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. And so, just for, for our readers, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, at the start of a Brecht, any scene in a Brecht play, an actor would come on one of the characters of the conversation, hold up a sort of plaque saying what's going to happen in the next scene. Absolutely. So the audience would know. So the audience Absolutely. are not sitting there for the right. suspense or the excitement or what's going to happen. They sit there thinking, okay, I know what's going to happen. Let's look at the conditions that lead to that. Because it becomes an analytical yeah. process. And in fact, it? It famously in Act 3 of um, Mother Courage and Her Children is, is the very, very famous one where we say at the end of the scene, Mother Courage will find out that her third son is dead or yeah, something. Yeah, right. And then what happens is right at the end of the scene, she is throw, she is shown uh, the soldiers are showing Mother Courage the the body, mm. um, and of course she can't reveal that it's actually her son. Um, so she just shakes her head, and they show again. She shakes her head, and apparently there's this this turn to the audience, mm. and just this what's called the silent scream. Well, it's the Brechtian gestures, right? At, it's, at, yeah, yeah, and it yeah. opens up, and it was his wife who, who famous Helen Vagel who played it most famously mm. and opened this silent scream and they said it was actually shattering to the audience but yeah. totally unrealistic of course yeah but shattering nonetheless so but people can, can understand so what's it's, going it's on. reminding the audience that theater is a symbolic act yes right absolutely that you're not watching it's not reality tv yeah yeah More's the pity. I, <laughs> the more's the I, pity. I Where's Big Brother of, Ben? Or Big Brother 12 or whatever it is. <laughs> or help other celebrity get me out of here. Um, look, let, let, let's come back to theatre because we've been waxing lyrical... Sorry, cinema. We've been waxing lyrical about the mm. theatre. Mm. Are we putting off cinema because we have no idea what to say about it? Possibly. Yeah. Um, let's... But, the, but we might have made an start? argument anyway as to why theatre okay. still exists. So... But I think that last point about Brecht and what we're saying about Miller and Williams 
is that theatre tends to exist in a fairly symbolic realm. I don't mean that in a pretentious way. I mean that in a we go to the theatre and we know that we can take away from it more than what's on the stage. Yeah. Right. I would argue, and I'm a huge fan of cinema, of course. I would argue that you go and watch Transformers three. Mm. Do you take away any more than what's on the screen? I think it would be very hard to. I went and saw um, years ago when I was living in Egypt. Uh, I went and saw Mission Impossible Four. Or something, yeah. Right? And, uh, and and I'd pers- it obviously wasn't impossible because the first three were cracked. So uh, yeah, they were, and cracking. <laughs> um, but um, but but interestingly, in Mission Impossible Four, I remember going there and having a perfectly nice time. And uh, I remember a friend saying to me, "Oh, you went and saw the new Mission Impossible? How how was it?" I said, oh, "It was alright." Yeah, they said, "What was the basic outline? What's the basic storyline?" Yeah. And I'm not joking. I was looking. At, at you and I look, uh, looking at him then the way I was looking at you and I just at that moment in time I, I had absolutely <laughs> no idea what happened in that it film involved about. cracking the code to a safe no nope. it involved man with disguise I couldn't remember a single thing about the film I couldn't remember a single thing about have it you, not one a, thing have you seen a doctor about that listen we set up a question at the start of this pod which is why theatre survived alongside film and we haven't yeah. once mentioned film okay and let's we, talk, and let's we've talk been rabbiting away for how, how long What's that? Five hours? Five hours? No, 50 minutes. Well, 50 to, minutes? To some extent, film is more... Um, there, are th- there are things that film can be about that the plays can't be about. Let's, let's take a very simple answer to this. Right, so, flying around in space, shooting each other, you can't yeah. do on stage. So, so, so yeah, okay. film... Right. We, we, we don't want to get into what film can do that plays can't do, because mm. that's, that, it's obviously a medium that can do yeah. certain things that you can't do on stage. Okay. Agreed? So yeah. really, we're really looking at, does film do better, do, do better what stage does? Okay. Well, yeah, true. Um, let's just, because I think a lot of people would say, well, okay, you can sort of fly around in spaceships and blow things up is a big bonus of film. And of, of course it is. But look, let's take Transformers 3, I just mentioned. Film can turn a car into a robot. Mm. And we watch it and we let it happen. And we see what happens next. Theatre can't do that. So theatre... I saw a performance once of uh, Kafka's Metamorphosis. Mm. Theatre turns a man into a beetle. <laughs> sort of metaphorically. Not the, so, not, not the car. No, no or not, not the band member either. Because we're back in Transformers. Yeah. <laughs> Kafka's Metamorphosis, where a man wakes up one morning as a beetle. I, yeah. taught, I taught that play at my last... Uh, I've, that I've that, that novel that, at my yeah. last school. Yeah. And I, I, my opening gambit was... I thought people would be able to relate to me. I said, guys, how many of you have woken up in the morning and just felt yourself as insignificant as a beetle? Hmm. Nobody raised their hand. No? No, it was only me in the room. The only person who raised their hand was uh, Ringo Starr <laughs> at the back. <laughs> Feeling insignificant as a beetle. <laughs> Everyone else, that feeling of insignificance had never crossed their mind. Um, 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 but is that, is, that uh, a feeling, uh, is that a feeling you have often? Don't you? Uh, feeling of insignificance? Um, feeling of utter inferiority? Feeling of being minuscule? No, I have the, I have the opposite problem. You know, you know, low self-esteem, excessively high self-esteem. Exactly. I think in a few years that's when we diagnose as a real condition, the high self-esteem condition. I have totally inappropriately high levels of self-esteem. <laughs> People whose life is crippled by this excessive perception yeah, of themselves. I just presume that I'm competent. <laughs> Which you're not, by the yeah. way. You're not yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, 
But what's more powerful, seeing a transformation or imagining that transformation? I would say imagine that transformation is far more powerful because, of course, it's taking place within your own head. Um, watching a car turn into a robot, personally for me, doesn't do anything. Okay, the car's a robot. For what? What's going to happen now? Let's now watch the, what, what happens versus moving. Of course, nothing happens other than robots blow up robots. Yeah. But being told to imagine a human being turned into a beetle, for me, is a far more powerful exercise. Um, I might be old-fashioned. Okay, but that's not the kind of... Yeah, I agree. But that's not the kind of film... Uh, on one hand, there are things that films can do, but they're not really the, the, the ones that are interesting. Okay, but, but... What we're interested in is, can film do realism? Yeah. If realism makes the 20, like 20th century theatre better than, than the 18th century theatre, which yeah. it may not, but let's yeah. say it does. Um, okay. Then, then surely if film does that realism better in, in good well-written drama I mean okay. like, Transformers not good well-written drama is it? it's just it's just <laughs> unless you're a robot fetishist it's not interesting is it no okay so but, but, but therein lies one of the problems of cinema that the form of cinema requires there's a, there's a there has to be a financial input to it that as soon as you have a kind of CGI special effect, you need bums on seats if you want bums on seats it's very easy to do that you put Tom mm. Cruise's face on there on the seat or <laughs> That'd be an even better way to get bums on seats. <laughs> why, why is Tom Cruise's face on this seat? Because you'll bums sit on, on seats. it. Bums bums on on seats. <laughs> and then when the movie starts, you have Tom Cruise's face. Yeah. Followed by Jason Stratham's yeah. face. Followed by Vin Diesel's face. Does anything happen with the seats? When you're, Vin... they're, they're quite <laughs> static. No, they, so they, they jump around they a little bit. Yeah. Is it like one of those chairs you get in, 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 in random balls? <laughs> Do you ever go to those? What's it, no, what, what's it called? Uh, Media Market. We got case. yeah. You can get those. You can sit in the chair. My kids always like saying, "Let's sit in the chair." And you sit in the chair and you press the button. It's all like oh, it's, it's, it massages it, you. a massage chair. Yeah, yeah. but it's such a twenty-first century thing. Just I want to interact with a human. I just want to disappear for a while into yeah. a sort of vague feeling of pleasure. And if I experience it for nine hours in my own home, then that's perfect. What about if it was um, so? So the idea that we we buy segregation. You didn't say that. No, but it's the idea, isn't it? You know, let's not yeah. let's not go yeah. to the pub and play yeah. play um, I, 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 pool. Let's get yeah. a pool table at home. Yeah, I get a pool table at home, and preferably I'd get it on my little screen on my phone. Yeah, and I can just so play, I, I can play against a robot, so I don't even. Yeah. If I lose, I can just turn it off. I can imagine. Never what happens. if when I'm sitting there playing it on my phone, on the chair beneath me is Tom Cruise's face? <laughs> it's still not sociable. No, no, it's not because it's, in a weird way, it's, 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 it's weirdly antisocial. Isn't in it? fact, it's slightly sociopathic. What if it's a augmented reality version of, of, of Tom Cruise's face? Tom Cruise's face. Still so, doesn't count so as it real. Sort of the real world flies out of, of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> mm. If I hold my phone over it, Tom Cruise says, the cruise "Hey, sit on my." No, let's move on. No. Uh, okay. Um, anyway, so so cinema. There, there's a big crop of films. In fact, I say over probably three quarters of movies have to make a certain amount of money because it's taken a certain amount of student investment to be able to turn that car into a robot or to be able to like film that death scene in a convincing way. Shakespeare mm. didn't have that problem. His deaths weren't convincing. They didn't need to be because none of it is convincing. In the ancient Greeks, they're off stage. They're, no, they're, exactly. So they know our limitations. Film knows its limitations. The way around it is, that's a really expensive death scene with, with CGI. But to do that, we need to get loads of money. We got loads of money by having like an Angelina Jolie cameo like, mm. needlessly at the end. So 
a load of cinema, a load of cinema. We can't really look at sort of the, the qualities of the script because it is, of course, so confined by financial requirements. Mm. The script is dictated by finance. Um, let's just take a regular sort of art house movie. There are still limitations of the form, but of course, there's limitations of theatre, which I feel over two thousand years of theatre, it's learned to deal with in an effective way, which maybe in cinema it hasn't. Mm. Um, I think if we we can say that. The theatre certainly sort of shifts with the time probably more than cinema has. I'm not even convinced that cinema has changed that much in the last hundred years. An example, the very first, apparently the very first movie we have is Nosferatu, 1919 by Murnau. It was remade in 1980 by Herzog and it's being remade again now. And as far as I can see, in much the same way, only we just add more dialogue as we can actually record dialogue and we add more blood as we get more CGI. But actually the, the movie itself is not changing. Mm. What, about, what about movies? What about actors uh, undertaking what they call method acting? But it's actually obviously the Stanislavski method of becoming the character. Um, yeah, and this is obviously a theatrical tradition. I, I think this is sort of... I think sadly at the moment we look at young actors today. I, I mean, I, I think my take on it is that Heath Ledger killed himself because he was trying to become the Joker mm. from Batman. And uh, um, have you got any evidence for that? The the fact that um, in in an interview weeks before he died, he said he was eating nothing but raw meat because it gave his his eyes that sort of crazy red glare. Uh, he was trying not to sleep to give himself that crazy and. And then, of course, a few weeks later, he dies of sort of stress and taking tablets of names I can't pronounce. Um, Ibuprofen. <laughs> yeah, I can't pronounce. That. <laughs> it's it's a tough one. It's the it's the it's the R that follows the <laughs> exactly, B. Yeah. It's not. It's not um, but so look, maybe method acting has sort of spilled into theatre as well, and some of our finest actors uh, are method actors as well. But. But I get, and I guess finally, just to, to conclude that, then, the point is that we can get much more up close and personal with film. Yeah. We, we can have the, the camera on Will Smith's face as he kills the dog in I Am Legend. <laughs> the, the CGI dog. The CGI dog. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is, uh, which was the name of the nightclub I used to go to. <laughs> um, and uh, he kills that dog and he chokes it. And he all, does. And we're just watching his face. While an array of CGI and, zombies uh, descend on him but it, in but a it, CGI But setting. it's the same idea, though, that as he's killing that dog's face and the camera's right in his face, that's, the same, that's exactly the same idea as Eddie going down stage to sit in the rocking chair. But, mm. of course, the camera is much more up close and personal to mm. Will Smith. True. So, so let's draw this conclusion, then, which is, if that realism is much... It is... And if we're dealing with that idea and the real, there is much more realism in film. Because even yeah, if it's just, it just proximity of camera, for yeah. example, the idea of yeah, the idea of mood music and, and special effects, okay. But if we respond to humans, then we don't want it to be too special effecty before it becomes before, inhuman. Before we become alienated from it and it becomes That's right. escapism. That's right, okay. So so and of course, we can have certain sound effects on, on in, in a theatre anyway. So, mm. none of those things seem to be big relevant points apart from the camera is much closer than we can ever get to the character mm. in, in in a theatre. Uh, obviously, we have different ideas. Of, there are different theatre layouts and designs mm. and, and and things. Um, so, with that in mind, what is it that still we're still arguing makes the theatre a little bit more? Um, okay. meaningful well, let's come back to the very first point we made which is that breaking of the, of the fourth wall 
that actually theatre is is a shared experience. Right. right. So you have audience members who that actor is live, and there is, a lot of plays sort of work in that breaking of the fourth wall, so the audience is somehow involved. Um, in a way that cinema can't be. Mm. But actually, to the point where theatre becomes, the space becomes important. Mm. And and this has influenced genres. Um, we can look at sort of futurism of the early 20th century in, in Italy, where actually performances were appearing almost anywhere. And, and futurism was described as being a genre about speed and compression. And... and and by all accounts, it was sort of the the brutal entry of life into arts. Actually, art and life, the boundaries between the two were becoming sort of blurred. And performances were springing up on streets, in shops, in factories. And they, they weren't even being planned in some cases, becoming yeah. sort of improvised performances. Which is actually so, a, almost a reversion to the old wandering players. Right, it, yeah, it's re- it's a revolution, absolutely. not an evolution. Yes, perhaps. yes. Absolutely. But but on that note, there is a genuine thing that happens where an audience reaction can actually change the performance, which you can't yeah. possibly have in film. True. Right. So True. so our reaction can energize the the characters, can change the reaction, and in fact, in fact, you have some depending on the the, the subject matter, probably not so much in a tragedy, but in a comedy. The audience and the there can be some sort of degree of interaction mm. between audience and, mm. and and characters. So so now that shared experience can exist in say a cinema. So if I go back to I don't know, like I, I think the first time I saw Love Actually in Britain fifteen years ago or something, mm. I'm pretty sure it's the last time I was in a full cinema because of course people don't go yeah. to cinema anymore. Let's download it. Watch on Netflix. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, that sort of ultimately segregated experience but when it was a shared experience in a full cinema and a comedy film and everyone was laughing that we really got a sense of shared experience however whatever the audience reaction to that film does not affect the the film film. which you you can get on stage so I think that's one way I think theatre still exists because it's it's just a different experience Mm. Um, but you mentioned something about the avant-garde which I think you've already already yeah See, I, I was going to, it, again, it's just fun. I'm being cynical. I'm being you know, sort of Chomsky analysis. And some of the Chomsky analyze the media and say the media can never actually give us a sort of window onto reality because it has vested interests. Yeah. Whether it's people yeah. advertising in it or whether it's where it gets this information from or it just it's, it's need to make money. I think cinema is exactly the same. Cinema, if it needs to it's make money, model, yeah, right? it, can, it cannot be risky. Yeah. Whereas a piece of theatre can appear anywhere. You feel like a piece of theatre can be the product of an imagination without those shackles that we would see in, in cinema. Um, and I think you see it to the 20th century. So far we've mentioned futurism, we've mentioned realism, we've mentioned naturalism. Um, um, and then we can go on to things like... Absurdism, uh, existentialism. Yeah, absurdism. The, the very first telegram from Tommy Stoppard is absurdism. Um and then, of course, my favourite play is The Woman in Black. Mm. Terrifying, terrifying play. Yeah. Because what's more You love terrifying? being scared. I do love being scared. Um, but what's more terrifying? Watching The Exorcist and seeing a girl on screen, watching it as her head turns 360 degrees, and we see it, or actually that feeling that something could appear behind me right now in the auditorium, and mm. I have no idea. First date. You, you meet the woman or man in your dreams, because we're all equal. And you go on a first date. Would you rather take them to a theatre or the cinema? Would you rather take them to the woman in black? Or 
The Woman in White. Or the Fast and Furious 7. Fast and Furious 7. Well, no, because Fast and Furious 7 has just been nothing but eye candy on the screen. She's going to be sitting there thinking, why doesn't he look like yeah, Vin Diesel or Jason yeah. Stratham or any... Literally, she'll be thinking, why doesn't he look like any of the men on the screen? Mm. And I can't answer that question. Bruce Willis. Yeah, she'll be saying, why doesn't he like Bruce Willis? And I'll say, oh, I said, don't worry, I'll be bold soon. Just leave your store and look like Bruce Willis. What I like about Bruce Willis is he manages to wear what we what we used to affectionately call in England a wife beater. Yeah, but he pulls it you off. <laughs> and he pulls it off. He does. Uh, Literally. Yeah. And metaphorically. Um, well, so to conclude, so final, so the question was, not <laughs> the question of how has theatre survived, because we, we've, we've dealt with that. We're saying, who wins? And... Does theatre still have a place in the in the day of the film? I look. My line is: I hope it still has a place. Film can provide great escapism. Very quick anecdote: um, the Avatar effect. Doctors reported an increase in instances of depression following Avatar. And they believed it was because watching Avatar, that two thousand six James Cameron film, where it was the first three D movie. Well, it's the colonization of Indochina. Yeah, it's, it's basically Pocahontas, but sort of but three D. Yeah. People were so absorbed in the film that as they left the the the, theater, the cinema, and they realized that it was all cold and grey, and people were pushing in front of them, and they missed the bus. They realized that life is miserable compared to life in that movie theater. I want to mm. go back into that movie theater, and what's more, I want to go back onto that planet Pandora in, mm. in Avatar, and um, it led to cases of depression. People realizing that reality actually sucks, which which I think is quite a good thing. If it's an art form, it's, mm. it's a popular art form that makes us question the world we live in. I think it's a good thing, mm. but it does suggest that cinema is escapism. It's the seats are comfy. You can't see the audience. We're in sort of rows rather than sort of Shakespeare's or amphitheatre mm. shape. You can't see them. We forget there's an audience there. We disappear into the world of the movie. Mm. Theatre, we're reminded that this is a, this is a socio-cultural act. And a we're shared, part and a shared of it. experience. It's a shared experience and we're and, part and of it. And the only, and to conclude, the only, the only, the only uh, time I would, I would disagree with that is when I, I went to the cinema in, in Egypt when you were perfectly aware of everybody else. Um... Because I, I, you know, and I, I get a bit obsessive compulsive about silence when I'm watching, um, uh, you know, a touch of frost yeah. or, or something like that, and uh, yeah. and there was lots of phones and lots of conversation. Yeah, same in Portugal. Uh, People then then agree yeah, with. And, it, and in the end, I, 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 you know, forcibly put some popcorn in a in a, in a man's eye. That last bit wasn't true. That last bit wasn't true. Um, your emails now. Um. So uh, you got an email this week, Jamie. I, I, I got a really nice email. In fact, it wasn't an email. It was a question. I'm going to say it was an email from uh, my my student, Ricky, Ricardo Maggioni. Um, anyway, Ricky said, when's episode three going to be out? <laughs> <laughs> I said, Ricky, it's already out. Wow. That's a good email. Yeah, good email. That's a good, strong good email. email. Uh, I got an email from Dr. Eric Delson. Oh, and he said, I listened Dr. to your pod. And it was, D. Listen to episode one. It was surprisingly listenable, uh, he said. And um, would you be interested in having uh, uh, guest participants on the show? I and, know and, how you feel about guest participants. Yeah, well, you did the same as, as the last time you got asked this. You said, yeah, we we're interested in that. And, I, yeah. and of course, I said contractually, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so um, speak to Jamie, Dr. Delson. He, uh, he, he's, he's good cop here. I'm fighting Dr. D's corner. Yeah, he's, Jamie's the good cop, but ultimately um, we'll, we'll call you. 
Right, my final email, again not an email, but a conversation from Freedy uh, in my Langenlick class, Freedy Kayser, said um, there was too much echo on the last pod, Ooh, pod. too much reverb, Verb. <laughs> like that. That. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. <laughs> too much, too, too much reverb. Yeah, but this like we're speaking from the bottom of some chasm. Wait, are we only finishing now? Because you've got to get a train. <laughs>